Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September 19th, 2012, and this is episode 983 of the Survival Podcast. This is an important one today, guys. I have Donald Green from IfItHitsTheFan.com on today. We're going to talk about a subject we've really never covered before. Preparing your children for school disasters and crisis. And it's something that maybe I haven't done as much of because my son's now 22 years old. Uh, or maybe it's because it's kind of something that's kind of hard and scary to look at. I don't know, but it is something we need to look at. I met Donald last week when I was at the uh, Self-Reliance Expo in Hickory, North Carolina. He did a presentation on this subject. I thought it was amazing, I thought it was timely, and I thought it was something you guys needed to hear. So we're happy to have them on today. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure that the show's here for you Monday through Friday, seven days a week. Sponsor of the day number one, today is the Berkey Guy. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. I know it's shocking the Berkey Guy sells Berkey Systems, but he does. But you can get a Berkey anywhere. Why would you get a Berkey from Jeff Gleason, the Berkey Guy, though? Well, He's he's the Berkey guy. I mean, why would you go to like the non-Berkey guy or the guy that wants to be the Berkey guy or the I'm the Berkey guy too guy? Why wouldn't you go to the Berkey guy? Seriously though, Jeff's been taking care of this audience for over three years. Uh, he's a loyal sponsor. He always takes care of everything. If anything, Jeff is an obsessive workaholic. Out in North Carolina, we couldn't get his dad gone uh, tablet out of his hand, but I have to admire the work ethic because he's making sure that his customers are taken care of 24-7, 365. That's why you're going to go to Jeff the Berkey guy versus, you know, the I also want to be the Berkey guy guy, right? And also because he's got some other really cool prepping items. Check him out today. His website Directive21.com. Directive, the numbers 21.com. Click on his banner in the right-hand margin at survivalpodcast.com, and you'll know you're dealing with the real Berkey guy, not the fake Berkey guy, because I'm sure there's a fake Berkey guy out there somewhere. Next up today, uh, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his uh, cadre of instructors will help you become far more proficient with a firearm than you ever thought you could be. You know, I always say when I talk about ammo that if you have a gun without ammo, it's an overpriced club. Well, even a gun with ammo without training is it much more useful? And I know that a lot of us that grew up hunting and, and things like that, uh, we think we're trained, but there's a difference between shooting squirrels and defending your home. There's also a responsibility, I believe, if you're going to carry an implement capable of causing harm, you should have the skills uh, to heal. And Frank Sharp Jr. will teach you not just how to defend yourself, but how to give life-saving aid. Remember, even if all goes well and you're not injured by a bad guy in some kind of public shooting, and even if you respond and even if you do everything right, and even if you take out the threat, and even if law enforcement responds in a timely manner along with medical support, you may be required to help save another person's life. Uh, we often hear in mass shootings about how if there had been one armed citizen around, how many more lives would have been saved. I often wonder, in addition to that, how many people could have been saved if the people that were there that were uninjured 
had life-saving medical training. You can get both from Frank Sharp, and I think you should avail yourselves of both of those. Next up today, check out TSP Copper for some really cool copper rounds. We have cool stuff, all different types of designs. Uh, I promise you, if you do some browsing there, you'll find something you like. And remember, the pricing is for rolls, not individual coins. And you do get a discount if you're a member support brigade member, which leads me up to a member support brigade. If you are a member of the TSP member support brigade, what do you get? You get discounts to over 34 vendors. I'm about to bring Old Grouch in with a 10% discount from Old Grouch Military Surplus. Uh, we're working that deal out uh, today. It'll probably be up sometime by the end of today. That's just one more example of the great discounts. There's over $150 worth of free ebooks. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's public domain documents you probably don't know about that are available for you in the Member Support Brigade. And we're constantly making it better. You'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps uh, and first responders such as paramedics active due to your prior service uh, please email me before you join put service discount on the subject line tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service and I'll spend, send you a special discount code uh, so you can get a discount on the support brigade membership uh, to thank you for your service with that I've got everything wrapped up again Donald Green is here with us today to talk about a very important subject once again how to help our children prepare for school disasters and crisis and how we can do this in a way that's age appropriate there's certain things that you don't need to be telling your kindergartner when they're going off to school for the first couple weeks. They're scared enough already, and you may want to be a little bit more down-to-earth and real with your uh, your uh, your mid-schooler, and then your high schooler. Maybe you have to have even some more adult conversations since, sadly, it seems that it's those schools that seem to be the targets of uh, you know sometimes a shooting or something like that. But it's a difficult subject to discuss. When I heard Donald speaking about this in Hickory, North Carolina, I realized uh, I was fortunate to already have him booked for the same subject on the show. And I think this is going to be a sobering show, but it's also going to give you uh, great uh, resources and information on how you can make sure your kids are prepared as possible and how you can work with your school to make sure that they're prepared and they're not just saying, oh, yeah, we have a plan. Because there's certain things you need to do as an involved parent to make sure they actually have a plan and that it's a good plan and that they know how to implement it. Uh, and with that, I'd just like to say, hey, Donald, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate you having me on today. Hey, I was just uh, just with you in uh, North Carolina. You did a, a great presentation on the subject that we're going to talk about today. Um, but I was wondering if before we get into that, if you could just tell people just a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into this whole thing uh, with you know blogging and, 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 and being involved with the prepper community. Okay, sure. I, uh, I've been a prepper since I was in high school in the early 80s. Uh, you know, I started reading Mel Tappan's Survival Guns and uh, Jerry Ahern's Survivalist series and watching Red Dawn. And throughout high school, I, I had a, they didn't call it that at the time, but I had a bug out bag underneath my bed with my 22 and my shotgun and a couple of canteens. And um, after high school, uh, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was in Desert Storm uh, as an artilleryman. And after that, I became a police officer, and as part of that job, I got in a little bit to the emergency management side of things, um, and I still kept doing the uh, prepper work as well on the side. Um, prior to Y2K, two friends and I had a, our own primitive website called Simplify2K.com, uh, which we failed miserably on, but we learned a lot from it. Um, here in the past uh, seven years, I've uh, uh, left police work and I've started working for a public school system as their chief of security and emergency planning. Um, 
as I did that, uh, you know, I started listening to your show and reading other blogs on the internet as, as that kind of grew. And about three years ago, I started ifithitsthefan.com, uh, just a, a blog about my thoughts and ideas on prepping and preparedness and survivalism. And I started doing that just you know, once or twice a week. And then when you had uh, Gary Vaynerchuk on as a guest, uh, I, I got a lot out of that, and I decided to go full force with the blog, and I've been doing almost daily posts uh, since then. I recently passed, uh, I think, 550 posts so far in the last three years. Um, I've got a good, loyal readership that uh, I really enjoy talking to the folks with the comments and on email and actually meeting some of them at different places. Um, uh, professionally, I'm a certified emergency management assistant through the state of Virginia, and I'm working on a master's degree in emergency and disaster management. Um, and I teach crime prevention, school safety, and disaster preparedness uh, different places across the state, uh, church and civic groups, and uh, school conferences. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate having you here. And we're going to talk about something I've never really done a tremendous amount uh, with, and it's something we need to do. So I was really excited when I saw your uh, your app to be a, a guest come through, and that's getting our children prepared for school disasters and crisis. And I think there's a lot of parents out there that, you know, they shudder today uh, when they send their kids off to school, especially when they're really young, because you're an older kid, you can give them some heads up on some things. But some of our, you know, when your your kid's in kindergarten and one, first grade and whatever, it's it's scary. So what are some of the threats our schools face today? Well, the first thing we think about uh, is, is school shootings, mass shootings, and mass killings, um, Columbine-type things. But that's just a small part of it. Um, weather emergencies are huge. Uh, tornadoes, uh, two schools within just a few miles of my house got hit by tornadoes uh, last year alone. Um, accidents are a threat, and as simple as uh, something that was in the news a few months ago, uh, an old lady uh, in her 80s was dropping off her granddaughter at school and hit the gas instead of the brake and ran into a, a group of kids outside of the school. Chemical spills um, from a nearby highway or railroad or uh, from a science lab, uh, gas leaks, uh, natural gas leaks from the cafeteria if a delivery truck backs into the valve. We've had cases of fleeing felons that uh, they rob a bank uh, two blocks from the school and they you know, run around, hide in the school, or try to take a hostage in the school for uh, to, to try to get away from the police. The number of threats are just—it's hard to think about how many threats there are, and yet still the vast majority of children come home safely every day. Yeah, you mentioned the school shooting thing and and some things that I guess we could call terrorist action. I mean, uh, I would say that if a felon takes hostages in a school, I consider that as much an act of terrorism as I do blowing up a plane. Sure, sure. Uh, And during your presentation, you talked about some of the worst school disasters in history. And some of the things that we think of as being relatively modern occurrences, things that just started happening in the last 10 years, and and gave us an historical perspective that – Frankly, shocked me. Some things I knew nothing about. So, could you share with us some of the worst school disasters we've had, and let people know that maybe it's not as a modern occurrence as maybe we think it is? Right. When we talk about school shootings, the one that immediately comes to mind is Columbine or possibly Virginia Tech, um, but it's really a whole lot older than that. Uh, school violence, the mass violence. And I'm going to give you a scenario, and I know you know the answer, but for the listeners, uh, think, I want them to think about this while I say it. We've got a man who's upset about a political situation, so he plots revenge, and he's going to use a school and the school children as his target. 
He got a job as a maintenance man at the local school, and over the course of several months, he, he stashed uh, over a 1,000 pounds of explosives in the school basement. And on a warm day in May, he started a, a, a fire at a farm just outside of town. Uh, it was his farm. He killed his wife and started a fire in the barn and set off an explosive there. So all the, fire, the local fire department was heading out to his farm, and while that happened, he detonated the explosives under the school, and he fled the area. So the responders... They left his farm. They went back to the school. It was a scene of horror. Uh, with, you know, the building was collapsed. There were, there were you know, dead and injured people all over the place, a lot of children. And he drove his car up into the middle of a small crowd. He called over the school superintendent, and he detonated uh, explosives in his car that was filled with scrap metal. So, you know, a typical car bomb. There were over 500 pounds of explosives in one wing that failed to detonate, but from the ones that did go off uh, between his car bomb and the, one, the bombs in the school, 38 children were killed, two teachers, four other adults, and the bomber himself. And another 58, which were mostly children, were injured severely, many of them. And, and let me hold you there before you go yeah. too much further, because I just want to point out that most people listening to this right now are probably thinking this sounds like something Al-Qaeda would do. Sure, you know, And I just least. want to drive that on, and I want you to keep going, but I just want people to think about that, because I'm waiting for people here to get hit with the, yeah. let's call it the, the, the ugly punchline here. This happened. I don't mean to interrupt you. I just want to drive yeah. that home for people. This happened, believe it or not, in Bath, Michigan in 1927. The killer was a member of the school board. He was mad about property taxes that he blamed for the foreclosure on his farm. And he did a classic Al-Qaeda or Middle East terrorist attack with uh, diversionary devices and secondary devices and car bombs and children as a target. It's, it's a little-known piece of American history that you know, it really is a textbook school massacre and and then the scary part is if uh, one individual could pull that off in 1927 then just about any individual uh that committed to death and mayhem and and, and having that little concern for their own life could pull it off today they, they really could and, and a lot of that uh is similar to the the Beslan, uh chechnya uh, school massacre a few years back where the terrorists actually hid weapons and explosives in the school working as maintenance people over the summer and that's probably the most dramatic example of you gave of a historical uh, incident in a school, but it wasn't the only one. Could you talk about maybe some of the other ones? Yeah, we um, school kids today, and, and you and I are roughly the same age, and I know we did the same thing. Every month we have a fire drill, and that drill, the alarm goes off, we file out of the classroom, follow the teacher down the hall, and go to the same location in the parking lot. And they have there's fire codes and, and building inspectors and you know, rules about keeping doors chained and fi where fire extinguishers have to be and the fact that the teacher can't put too many posters and paper up on the walls. And because of those rules, there it's been decades since an American child has been killed in a uh, public school fire. Most of those came about because of a fire that happened in 1958 at Our Lady of Angels Catholic School in Chicago. And in that school, a fire uh, broke out in a cardboard barrel in the basement, and it smoldered for who knows how long until it got hot enough to break a window in the basement, which fed it oxygen. The fire raced up the um, stairwells into the upper floors and into the attic, and this old wooden building um, caught fire uh, terribly. And by the time the fire got extinguished, 92 children and three of the nuns were dead, and over 100 children and adults were injured. And we never really knew for sure what caused uh, that fire to start, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it was a 10-year-old emotionally disturbed student 
um, who admitted to setting the fire and knew things about it, but he later recanted uh, his statement and was never prosecuted for it. Hmm. But then the shootings, that's got to be new, right? I mean, we didn't have kids shooting teachers or other students you know, 100 years ago, did we? The, the first school shooting that I'm aware of was uh, in Greencastle, Pennsylvania in 1764, before the U.S. even existed. It was uh, four Lenape Indians uh, entered the school and shot and killed the schoolmaster and nine or ten students. Um, in 1853, a Kentucky schoolboy took a pistol to school and shot a classmate. Um, 1867, in New York City, a schoolboy shot and injured a classmate. So, you know, for the last 150 years, school shootings have not been out of the ordinary, um, but because of media, people really didn't know about them outside of their local towns. Yeah, I mean, when you were doing your presentation, you were going, I could tell you you were going to go, this isn't new, and you were going to go back in time. I was waiting to hear about, you know, uh, uh, Texas, Texas A&M University, uh, right. which, which wasn't that long ago, but it's so long ago a lot of people forgot about it. But you went way, way back, and that just belies what I've been saying forever, that all these things that we think are new in the human condition are old, and that's why we need to prepare, because it's not something that happens due to circumstance so much as it's something that happens because of human behavior and the behavior of you know what I call the 10% lower rung of society. Those people have always been willing to do things, and the majority of them are held in check by fear of re you know reprisal in the law, but out of that 10%, maybe 2% of the total are willing to go do this stuff, and it's the half percent that are completely nuts that, that are a constant in society. Yeah, it's you know, truly amazing. Even with adults going into schools, which seems to be a recent uh, trend uh, between the Amish school shootings uh, a couple years ago, but back in, I think, 1958, uh, there was a school where a father, who he was a non-custodial parent, he had essentially kidnapped his son from the mother and tried to register the child at a school in Texas. And he didn't have the proper paperwork, so they, they wouldn't let him register the child. And he sat outside uh, with a suitcase and during a recess and called over a couple of teachers, and he detonated a bomb that was in his suitcase. And this was back in the 50s, um, and that killed about nine people at that school. Hmm. And then we, So we have the, the nut jobs that do these things, but we also have things like, well, the fire you talked about with the natural gas, that may or may not have been someone's uh, malice, but it even seems like even if it was, it wasn't necessarily malice of intent. In other words, kids started a fire but didn't necessarily know it was going to set off a gas explosion. And then we have things that are completely unrelated to human beings like tornadoes, like flooding, things like that. I mean, one of the biggest fears I think that parents in the South have is tornadic storms because unlike a hurricane that you can go, okay, well, this is going to be making landfall around mid-next week, and it's going to be somewhere here. These tornadic storms pop up, and, and some of you know, I don't have a problem with a kid learning in a portable building, but it's not a place to be in a tornado. So there's the storm threat as well. Right. Um, tornadoes are a huge threat in, in schools because there, there's a lot of people condensed into one location. And you know, as recently as 2007 in Enterprise, Alabama, a tornado hit the high school. And they did what they were supposed to do as far as getting into a narrow hallway and hunching down. But because it was a direct hit, there were still seven students who got killed in that. Um, and there have been... By my count, at least 271 deaths at schools in the U.S. because of tornadoes in the last 125, 130 years. Um, like I said, last year, 2011, two different tornadoes struck schools near my house. Uh, 
One completely destroyed a middle school that, thank goodness, it was on a Sunday and there were no kids there. Um, the other one hit a uh, school just a couple of miles from my house, an elementary school, and school was closed, but there was a Girl Scout meeting going on, and a couple of girls got uh, thrown about, and they got some minor injuries, and the roof got torn off the school. Oddly enough, just a few months prior to that, during Hurricane Irene, the same school lost its roof again. Uh, so the tornadoes are a huge threat. Uh, the best thing that a school can do for those is to have a NOAA weather radio and have it on and listen to it so they know when the threats are active. Along with having a, an organized plan that when this comes, this is where we put, move the students to. Exactly. Uh, and like you said, even when you do the right thing, it's it's not a guarantee. And I think that that's one of the bigger problems that people have with disaster preparedness as a whole is a belief that if we just do everything right, you're guaranteed success. And the harsh reality is what we're trying to do in these situations is improve our odds of survival, not guarantee it. If we could guarantee it, it would be great, but it just doesn't work that way. Right. The the uh, the plan for emergency management, as it comes down from, say, the Department of Education to the schools, is four-pronged, and it's prevention and mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. And the schools need to have all four of those incorporated into their plans for all hazards. In your estimation, did you, would you believe that the majority of schools have done a reasonable job with that? I think they're getting there. Um, over the past seven, eight years, there have been quite a few grants from the federal government to help schools get better, but, you know, it's limited funding in schools in 50 states and, you know, 100 million children, but uh, they're getting better and they're improving every day. I mean, it seems to me like a lot of this is a plan, and a plan isn't necessarily expensive, so, yeah, it'd be great if we could put in a tornado shelter in every school south of the Mason-Dixon line, but that would accommodate, you know, the 2,000 children going to a high school. Uh, that's not realistic. Most of it is planning to deal with what could happen with what you have. And, and so I think they only get so much of an out on the funding side of things. Yeah, they keep it. Uh, the goal is to plan for all hazards that are realistic for your community. You know, for instance, a school in Nebraska doesn't need to plan for a tsunami, but one <laughs> in Hawaii certainly does. And to you know, make the best of it uh, with educating the students, educating the staff, and one of the real keys to having a plan is to practice that plan. Absolutely. So given that most of us, like, we do believe our schools do the best they can under the circumstances they have, but we don't necessarily trust them to do everything for us, and we shouldn't, and I don't think we should trust any organization to do everything for us as parents or as citizens. What are some of the things we can do to make sure that our children are more prepared when we send them off to school? Well, one thing, the parents parents are the best ones to prepare their children that way because they know their specific child, you know, how mature the child is, the child's mental abilities, um, how, how the, the child acts under stress. The parents know those things. So it's really incumbent upon them to work with their individual children either in conjunction with the school plan or in addition to it or in some unfortunate cases uh, in contrast to the school plan. Um, probably the, the most important thing parents can do is to talk to their children about the risks at school and what can be done for different risks and getting the child's feedback on it um, and make it age appropriate. You know, when the, uh, a first grader comes home from school and says, Mommy, we had a fire drill today, talk to the first grader about 
why they have fire drills with you know they don't need to go into the horror story of the the Catholic school in Chicago but talk about fire safety and and ask the child you know did you feel safe during this if there was a fire would would you have uh, been safe and as the child gets older you can incorporate other threats and risks into that conversation um what to do during a school shooting there've been a number of school shootings where a student whether you know on the football team or the wrestling team or just a kid in the cafeteria have tackled the shooter and have been truly heroes now that's not in any security or crisis plan for a school but you know based on that child's upbringing and his mental state and his physical state he was able to take some action um so the parents talking to their children about what they can do and what they can expect is great. And again, keeping the age appropriate so as not to not to scare the child away from going to school the next morning. Um, other things on how we can do that, keep that age appropriateness going on. I, I think it, it really, it really depends on the child on, on the individual child. Uh, and just, if you see the child is getting scared or upset by the conversation, ease back on it. It's probably just as sensitive as having that sex ed talk with your kid. I also would say that what I would add to that is, like when we were dealing with a situation where my son's birth father was terminally ill, uh, one of the things we were counseled by doctors is kids are ready for answers to the questions that they ask. Right. So I think that helps us guide a little bit along those those lines as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that, and also incorporating things such as, you know, drills at home. Um, I know my, my nephew is a Cub Scout, and one of their tasks is to set up a family fire drill plan. And by give, putting that responsibility on kids that are ready for it, it really helps them get their minds around what could happen at school or even out at the mall or at a restaurant with the family. Um, so, so doing that when they're, when you're out at a restaurant with your family, looking at your child and saying, all right, if something bad happened in here, where are the emergency exits or what should our family do if there's a tornado coming right now and kind of steer the conversation between a bad thing happening at school and a bad thing happening wherever you happen to be. Um, and there's some other things we can do as far as building EDC or everyday carry kits, uh, for children and, making them something they can carry to school with them. And, again, it has to be age-appropriate. It also has to fit, fall within the school rules. Absolutely. Now, we can only do so much with our own children, right, because we do kind of hand them off. And uh, people don't like the term, but I mean, it really kind of is the reality that the day they, you know, the minute they leave your care and they go under the care of teachers and principals and administrators and their, their fellow students, a large degree is now out of your control. So we also need to help ensure, as responsible parents, in my view, that the schools are doing all that they can, that they're prepared. So how can we uh, do a better job of getting involved with that without having the principal thinking we're like, you know, some guy on doomsday preppers or something like that? Sure. One thing I encourage parents to do is get a look at their school's crisis plan. Every school should have one, and the quality of them may vary, but – you know, ask to see that, and don't come at it as I listen to the survival podcast, and I'm an expert on survivalism, so I want to see your crisis plan. Come at it just as a concerned parent, curious about what would happen during a a fire or a tornado. Um, some schools will try to say that it's confidential and they can't share it, but yeah, to me, there's nothing top secret in those plans. They're all pretty much the same. Yeah, there might be some details, but 
if the principal knows you're a concerned parent, you're active in the PTA, or you're active as a volunteer in your child's classroom, and they're gonna they're gonna see you not as you know you're not a investigative reporter coming in, or you're not a terrorist coming in. So ask to see those crisis plans, and if need be, you know, go higher. Go to the school board or the superintendent if the principal uh, is giving you a, a, a stone wall that, you, that they're not opening up. Another thing I would suggest is many schools have a, a safety committee, um, and it's, sometimes it's a combination of PTA members and the school police resource officer and the principal and some teachers. But try to, if a parent is really interested and, and has some additional knowledge, um, go ahead and try to join those safety committees to try to make an impact on how the school itself prepares. Um, and then volunteer at the school as well. So, uh, I know every, every school that I deal with is, would love to have parent volunteers in there. Um, sometimes it's as little as you know, helping to read to a child who's having trouble, but it could be as, as advanced as helping out when they're having a tornado drill or, or a fire drill or you know, being the person who goes around with the custodian and the police officer to look at the building in, in a comprehensive uh, site survey to see where what things could be improved for safety in the building. Um, and, again, whatever the parent's interest and level of knowledge is, they can contribute that to the school, and that gets them more aware of what the school is doing and also helps uh, you know improve what the school is doing in many cases. Absolutely, and uh, when, when we look at that, we also have to ask ourselves, well, if the worst happens, if if I turn the radio on or get a call from my spouse and I hear there there has been a disaster at my school, let's say it has been attacked, some kid, you know, did what that kid in, uh, in uh, I remember the place in Arkansas did a few years ago, um, I can't think of the town now, or a Columbine-like incident, and this is an active situation. What, what the hell do I do as a parent? How do I respond to that? As hard as it is, and I know it would be hard for any parent, is to not go to the school, um, to listen to the radio or the news alerts and go where they're being told to and when they're being told to for reunification with the parent, with the children. Uh, going to the school, it, you know, if all the parents show up, they can block the emergency egress and ingress for responders. Uh, it can put parents at risk of, of being a target, whether from the, the shooter inside the school or even from the police responders. They don't know who they're dealing with, and if they've got a parent beating on the door trying to get in, they could be seen as a risk to the responders. So it, as hard as it is, uh, I really encourage parents to not go to the school when something like that happens and to go wherever the school system says to meet your child later. Um, conversely, if you hear about attacks at other schools, um, uh, a few years ago uh, when Glenn Beck was on CNN, he did a series, a uh, special series called The Perfect Day, and it was essentially a study of what might happen to to bring things like the Beslan school attack to the U.S., and the general thought is that they would hit several schools across the country simultaneously. So what I have told my family is if you hear about an attack on a school anywhere in the country, immediately go to your child's school and get that child out of school, um, whether it's a fake doctor's. You know, we got a doctor's appointment all of a sudden. We need to get Johnny out or whatever the case may be. But I think with me it would be he's my son and I'm taking him whether you like it or not. Exactly. I, 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 am, I, I understand administrators trying to do jobs and things like that, but 
I've had not for this reason, but other kind of butting heads with uh, school administrators over. My son won't be at school for a week because we're taking a family trip. Mm-hmm. And in the end, my response has always been, "You can like it, you cannot like it, you can bitch about it, you can complain about it, but when he's your son, you can decide where he's going to go." Right. And I think in that situation, it would be, "I'm here for my son, and goodbye, go out." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, not not to come off too aggressive there, but I just no, it bothers me that anybody yeah. would tell me what to do with my child. I agree wholeheartedly with that. And I do think that you're right that if you're in doubt, I mean, when you were saying that, as unrelated as it seems. What it made me think of was when, on 9-11, when the first tower was hit, people that were in the other tower being told to stay. Right. And, 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 and me thinking, even when I was listening to them discuss that before the second plane hit on the radio, the radio reports were coming in, and they were talking about they're telling everybody else in surrounding buildings to stay put. And all I was thinking was, no, 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 no. And I think that there's a lesson there in trusting your gut. Yes, certainly. Uh, you know, the parents, a parent's not going to be able to go through their workday if they're worried about what might happen at their child's school if something is happening in another location. They're 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 not going to feel right until they have their child with them. And and the child, you know, especially with with Twitter and Facebook, kids know what's going on around the world these days the second it happens. And yeah, you know, the kids aren't going to be able to learn in school that day. So the best thing. If there's an attack on a school in a nearby city or even across the country, get your kids out of school and get them home and wait to see what happens after that. Yeah, I know when, when 9-11 happened, I was, I was flying that day because I was in a job where I pretty much flew every day. And uh, I, I just kind of let other people make phone calls because I knew my wife knew my flight number and everything. And I knew it was bad. I didn't know, None of us knew really what was going on yet. But I knew that she wouldn't be worried about me. And then when that plane went down in Pittsburgh, I had to be flying in Pittsburgh, and it was just outside of Pittsburgh, and that's how it was getting reported. I got a hold of her you know, through the, the melee of, of phones, and I said, call the school and tell our son that I'm – have them tell our son. I'm, I'm sure they know. The kids sure. know about this. you know. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and the, the space shuttle crashed, and they brought the TVs in to show it to us. I'm like, I'm sure they know, and he's going to hear Pittsburgh and freak the hell out. Right, and they were absolutely positively rude, and said that they would not be interrupting class to let him know that. And she called me back, upset, and I said, "Just go get him, yeah. because I don't know that he needs to be there anyway right now. It's half a day of school, you know. We'll, we'll, we can work that out. If your kid can't miss a half a day of school, he can't miss a half a day of school. So I think some administrators in schools work really hard with parents, and I think sometimes they're just scared and they don't know, and they respond accordingly, you know, and and maybe respond in ways that we prefer they didn't. But I think at the end, it's our our responsibility to make choices for our children. And I really think that as the age of administrators, uh, you know, the younger people are coming in who were in college when Virginia Tech happened or when Columbine happened, and, and they've grown up with this, they're much more understanding of working with the parents than perhaps you know somebody who's been a principal for 25 years. Yeah, and they're in that, that normalcy bias, blinded area, even though they've heard about it in the news. That's not going to happen in my school. And things are different, because I remember when I was a teenager, and I got my first car, it, and I've heard people say this, and I think a lot of people think we're just full of crap, but we're, people from my generation were not. Kids I went to school with, we would bring shotguns not into the school or not displayed, but might be locked in the trunk of a car or behind the seat of a truck, and as soon as school was over, we'd go out to the fields and go dove hunting. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't not known, you know. It was it wasn't nobody talked about it a lot, but it was known that that with the fact that you went was was known, you know. And no one got upset or worried about that. And we live in a different world now. 
than than that. And I think that people that were students during this time, like you're saying, that are coming and taking over these schools, like it's more personal to them. The, the principal of the school 900 miles away sees it and goes, and I'm not speaking for all principals, for God's sakes, but the 25-year guy like you're talking about and goes, not here, not in my town. But the student feels like that could be me. Right. So maybe you're right. Maybe we'll get more enlightenment as, as younger people come in. I hope so, because I do think there's a hole there. I, I think between that and also with just a greater awareness among the general public about crisis and emergency preparedness, it, it's people are more willing to listen, they're more willing to learn and to see what could happen and, and to plan for it and, and to work with whether it's the local police department, the local fire department, or the parents. Um, you know, there, there's many hard, you know, principals who are set in their ways who if something happens in their school, they're not going to call the police. They're going to try to deal with it internally, and, and that is really going away as well. Um, so on th- major things, so I think it needs to because yeah. the minute if you think you might need to call the police, call the police. Exactly, especially in a public thing like a school district or something like that. I think it's it when it, we we had a saying for salute. I'm sure you had it back when you were in the military as well. When in doubt, whip it out. Right. Yeah. Right? When in doubt, dial the phone. I mean, you were saying. I remember from your presentation. Now you, this makes me think of this. There are schools where. Like only one or two, like a principal and the vice principal, and only two people authorized to call nine one one. Yeah, there are schools where, and I was actually talking to a, a lady who's a teacher in North Carolina after my presentation, and that's it's like that at her school. Um, teachers will not deviate from the crisis plan at all. They will hide in the corner with the lights off and the door shut, not try to get out the window to the wood line. They will not call nine one one. They'll call the office and ask, tell the principal what's going on, so the principal can decide if nine one one needs to get called. And I think that, I mean, I think we need to know as parents if our schools feel that way, and if so, we need to be talking about changing it. Yeah, I strongly encourage any parent to find out from their school, talk to their their child's teacher more so than the principal, because you don't, you know, the principal may say, oh yes, anybody can call nine one one, but talk to your child's teacher off the record, say, you know, if something bad happens, are you empowered to call nine one one yourself, or to call for a lockdown yourself, or to break a window and escape from the room? And I think another like question to add to that would be, and would you? Right. <laughs> you know, and would not you? just are you allowed to, but would you? You know, because what this makes me think of is, and of course hindsight's twenty twenty, but the reports that we have of Columbine, once these kids set off a couple bombs and started shooting people, was them walking nonchalantly around picking victims at random. And I remember I read Ted Nugent's book, God's Gun, God Guns and Rock and Roll. And one of the statements he made about that was somebody for one of these teachers, for the love of God, pick up a chair and put it across one of these kids' backs mm-hmm. while their guards down. But they were so conditioned to just find a place and hide that that's what they did. And in those types of scenarios, finding a place and hiding is is probably a good way to end up dead. It it really is, and there are thankfully that's starting to change. Um, there there are some programs out there where they teach staff and even older students about how to attack with a desk or with notebooks and books and podiums and things uh, if it's a last-ditch effort to save lives. There's also some school districts in Texas and Utah that are now allowing teachers to be armed in the classroom um, through special programs working in conjunction with the sheriff's office and, and additional training. 
so that is changing. Some other things that changed out of Columbine was back then the response was, you know, the SRO, the school resource police officer, there's a shooter in the building. He's going to wait for several other police officers to arrive. Then they're going to try to contain the situation and wait for the SWAT team to arrive, all of which led to needless uh, deaths. And shortly after Columbine, the, the strategy changed to the first four police officers, state troopers, deputy sheriffs to get there will team up and make a beeline for where the shooting is happening. And it's even changed since then to where if there's one or two officers, they're going immediately for the, the gunfire to end the threat immediately. They're not going to stop and check on wounded people. They're not going to check doors that are locked. They're going to immediately neutralize the target. And they're the ones that have body armor. They're the ones that have guns. They need to put themselves at risk to make it stop uh, to save lives. You know, and I wonder how we got away from that. I mean, I know this was a college versus an uh, elementary school, but in the A&M shooting, it was a single state police officer. It was either state police officer or city police officer that responded initially mm-hmm. that went up the tower and met an armed citizen with a rifle along the way, and the two of them went up there and took that shooter out. Right. And, and it wasn't that, even a, like the, you would think like today if a cop's headed up into something like that sees an armed citizen with a gun would be like you need to get out of here or probably draw down on him. I listened to the story in a documentary where the cop himself was explaining it and he and he said the first words out of my mouth were I guess I know why you're here. Are you committed to this? Will you go with me? Yeah. And even at Beslan in uh, Chechnya, the the first people on the scene were townspeople with their hunting rifles and shotguns and shooting at the terrorists in the windows before the police and before the uh, military arrived. Uh, they they were holding down the fort, so to speak, uh, just townspeople. Um, in this day and age in America, I'd be very hesitant to be an armed citizen responding like that, but the fact of the police officers moving in quickly, that, you know, Texas A&M, it, that wasn't part of the plan. That just it was common sense. And yeah. A lot of times yeah. the, the, the plan needs to be overruled by common sense. Well, that one was that one was a whole story to that, backstory to that that people don't know about. Like, that wasn't just that one guy. There were multiple armed citizens that mm-hmm. figured out what was going on. And, and back then it was, you know, the time when everybody had a deer rifle in their truck. And there were people literally keeping that guy's head pinned down from a distance while those two guys were going up that tower. Right. Uh, you know, another a more recent case of somebody throwing the plan out the window, quite literally in this case, was at Virginia Tech. The uh, And I, I can't think of his name, I'm sorry, but the, the Holocaust survivor that was a professor, um, he knew what was going on. He The gunshots were in the hall, and the, the shooter was trying to get into the classroom. He barricaded the door with his body, told his students to break the windows and get out of the windows as he essentially sacrificed himself for his students. But there was nothing in the college's plan about throwing chairs through the windows and escaping that way. They were, If he had listened to the plan and told the students to hide under their desks in the corner, there would have been many more deaths there. I, I think that as our children get older and are old enough to accept this reality, that that might be the best advice that we can give them, that regardless of what you're told, if you know there's a, a, a threat, somebody's trying to kill you, and you can get the hell out, get the hell out. Right. Because I think there's like there's so much conditioning in children's mind are like, you know, actually would some of them would still worry about disobeying or getting in trouble while their life's in danger. Uh, they, re- they really are. They really are. And I think that's the number one way that people survive these things is getting out. Um, if we look at the Luby shooting, uh, that lady that testified in front of Congress, Susanna Hupp, 
the main reason she's alive today is as soon as there was an opportunity to get out, uh, she said my legs had wings and she was out the, the, the window. And, and unfortunately, her mother stayed beside her. Her father had already been shot and ended up dead as well. But it was the people that, that got out that survived. It, it, you mentioned Columbine, but toward the end of that, there were injured students that, that took – everybody remembers the picture of the one girl with her arm waving people towards her and basically letting herself fall out the window. Right. Um, at, at some point, common sense takes over conditioning, and people realize that if there's danger in a place, getting the hell out of there is the best idea. I, I tell the teachers in, in the school district where I work, when I, when I talk to their groups, you know, the crisis plan, the lockdown plan, it's guidelines and suggestions, essentially, because we can't plan for every variable. And as educated, professional adults, we understand that they have common sense, and we expect them to use it and trust them to use it. And I've, I've told them, if if you break a window and lower the kids out the window and send them to the wood line because there's gunshots in the classroom next to you and a child breaks his leg, you know, that's no big deal. That, that You save the kid's life even if he's got a broken leg falling out the window. I will, I will go to the bat for any of those teachers who use common sense to save lives even if it's not in the plan. I completely agree. I mean, I don't want my kid's leg broke, but I want him shot even less. Right. So what are some things that we can maybe arm our children with? I don't really mean arm is probably the wrong word, but I remember you were talking about making sure they have some level of preparedness kit with them at school. There's a lot of things that we would typically put in a preparedness kit that aren't okay in school. So what kind of things can we actually send our kids off to school with to help them uh, deal with any type of emergency, whether it's something this graphic or something far more uh, mundane? Well, again, age-specific or, or to your child's needs um, and their grade level, what a 17-year-old who drives to school can keep in his locker and in the trunk of his car is a whole lot different than what a first grader can keep in her Hello Kitty backpack. Um, but even, you know, and also a very young child is not going to be left alone to survive during a crisis. Uh, but these, you know, starting young with something as simple as, a space blanket, a poncho, a whistle, a little flashlight, and a couple of those four-ounce water pouches in a, a pencil bag in the bottom of the book bag, that can get the child just thinking about emergency preparedness and getting them used to the idea of having gear, as well as starting that, that OPSEC, the operational security mindset in the child, not to tell all your little friends that you've got two extra granola bars in your book bag. Um, and starting young, and one thing to keep in mind, especially with the younger children, is, you know, kids for decades and probably ever since kids have been going to school, if they have something that is going to bring them unwanted attention from their peers, they're going to ditch it on the way to school, whether it's galoshes or the raincoat or the wrong lunchbox. So talk to your child before you just give them a kit and, and, and make sure it's something they're going to be okay having, they're not going to be embarrassed about having. And also work, make sure that you know the school's rules. Uh, some schools still have a zero tolerance policy. My, my niece is in the sixth grade at a middle school this year and I can't give her a sport Berkey water bottle because some, several years ago some student had vodka in a water bottle so kids aren't allowed to have water bottles at school anymore. Um, so just. It do does it. seem like common sense has been put out to, to pasture in a lot of these schools. We just got an email in today. My wife sent over to me. There's a school that's either, I don't want to say the state because I could have it wrong, but I think it was Rhode Island, that has just banned father-daughter dances. I saw that. And mother-son events because they 
uh, are counter to the state's regulations on gender equality. Mm-hmm. I saw that. It's just like I, I just hope that parents understand from preparedness to anything else in your schools, your school district is not your state. It's not your federal government. It's a very local body of government. And when things are just upside down on their head, we need to get active and go to these school board meetings and let these folks know that it doesn't take a whole lot of votes being swung to get a school board member uh, fired and exactly. sent off to do something maybe more productive than tell kids they can't draw a picture of a soldier with a gun because it's a gun. Or tell that other, remember that kid that just came out with the, he was signing his name and the H looked like a gun. Right. And, they, and it was preschool and they want him to change his name. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, those are annoying things, but when they get in our way of our kids' safety, we've got to, we've got to really step that stuff up. Yeah. Uh, and, and with the, the, you know, an EDC kit for a child, as the child grows, the kit can grow. You can add more things to it as they ha- go from a cubby hole to a small locker to a full-size locker to having their own car in the parking lot. There, there's more things that can be added. Also, as the child's skill and, and confidence level increases. Um, one thing to really work with the kids, though, is on you know keeping it secret, not, you know, not telling other friends what they have, not letting their friends have access to it. Because unfortunately, there, there's a fair amount of you know, scumbag kids, for lack of a better word, and there's some good kids who get in a lot of trouble because the bad kid knows what they have or gets into it. And one of the examples I, I use is if you have a, a 17-year-old student and they're driving their own car to school, yeah, and they have some camping gear and maybe some emergency response first aid equipment or something in the back of their car, to not let their pothead buddy riding the car to school with him because that kid's going to, you know, he's going to leave his joint in the ashtray and it's going to get found at some point through a random canine uh, smell or anything like that. Uh, so tell your kids, you know, be very careful about who they let in their car, who they let into their locker. Don't share lockers and don't tell other people what's in these kits that you have. That's kind of the rights and responsibilities being concurrent with each other. Exactly. That's a huge lesson we can be teaching our kids as they get older. So um, if, a, if a person, like, kind of heard this today and they're kind of a little bit freaked out now and they really, maybe they've been prepping in their life, but they haven't really thought that much about the dangers to their kids when they go off to school and they're saying, what's my first step? What, what would you advise them? I would advise them first to talk to their child and get their child's thoughts on what's going on at school, and then talk to the teachers and the uh, administrators at the school about how the school is prepared, and just having those initial conversations. Um, Then, you know, work with the children as far as the drills. um, Make sure the school has that NOAA weather radio in the office. Just real little simple things like that. It doesn't have to be a tremendous effort or, 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 or there's certainly no reason to panic. Uh, every day millions of kids go to school and come home just fine, and, and that's how most of them will come home. But it's certain, something to be aware of for the parents and to just have these conversations and get the get the conversation started. And you have a lot of other great stuff, not just uh, protecting your kids while they're at school. And you have a, a website, again, your website is? It's ifithitsthefan.com. And, folks, I really recommend that you get by there and uh, subscribe to his uh, blog feed if you do it that way. Or do you have, like, an email notice or anything like that? Uh, there's an RSS feed on there. And if they can also go to the Facebook page for If It Hits the Fan. And whenever I put up a new post on the website, I put up a preview on the Facebook page. 
I'll make sure I put links to uh, all of that in today's show notes. And uh, Donald, man, this is a great episode. I think we've covered a subject that we kind of had a hole in here, and uh, you helped us fill it in. So thank you for that, and thank you for being on the air with us today. Jack, I really appreciate you letting me spread the word to folks, and it was also great meeting you and Dorothy at the uh, Expo this past weekend. Oh, absolutely. Loved hanging out with you and talking to you. And there were a lot of other great folks there, weren't there? There, there sure were. I met a ton of great people. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Donald Green, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Adios.